And then we start to move towards the 30s and the, the, the kind of disappearance, really, of the ballad and folk tradition that has still been in the background through the, through the 20s. After the war, it just about hangs on. Um, and we have this absolutely spectacular... Illustrated this with this memorial concert for Marjorie Kennedy Fraser, um, performed by Margaret Kennedy and the marvellously named Patuffa Kennedy Fraser, a name that has sadly gone out of fashion. <laughs> get many Patuffas these days. Um, <laughs> This is, is just a memorial concert, and she, Marjorie Kennedy Fraser set Hebridean folk songs, and often for, for song and harp, that's, and they, they're still getting done today. But I included it because in a lot of ways, this point in 1931, is, it is a memorial for, for the ballad tradition. It's really, that's kind of the end of it. All of these composers, some we haven't mentioned, um, the French composer Guy Dardelot, her works were performed consistently from the opening of the hall all the way through to 1927 and they go away and they never come back and that's really the case for a lot of these composers i think teresa del riego maybe comes back twice since the late 20s uh and all of those kind of women who were were just household names completely known by all of these singers and it's not just one singer who's performing these works at his concerts or her concerts mm. it's all of the singers all performing all of these works they all know them you sing them in the house you sing them with your teacher at your, at your music college you sing them with your friends and then you don't sing them anymore at all and one of the things i really wanted <coughs> with all this was to to kind of recontextualize all of those ballad songs a little bit because what happens next is that all of those songs get regarded as old-fashioned girly music that if we're women composers who want to be taken seriously, we're not going to do anymore. And they become very trivial in a lot of people's mm. minds. And they really weren't. I mean, they may not be to everyone's taste now. Some of them sound very old fashioned still to us. They sound um, very sentimental in a lot of ways. And that's not always what, what certainly wasn't what was wanted in the mid century. And it's not always what's wanted now either. But it was what was wanted at the time. These women were fanatically successful at doing mm. that, and they were absolutely as successful as the men. And almost for the last time, really, in the 20th century, that's the point at which, in that genre of music, there were no questions about, well, is this music by a woman, or is this music by a man? No one cared. They were just there mm. doing that. And after that, it becomes the tension of, being a woman composer becomes a really strong thing that in some ways never goes away. Um, and it's kind of sad in some ways to see the kind of end of that, even though it became music that was not so, not so highly regarded after this, that that was a real era where it just didn't matter in a lot of ways, yeah. whether or not you were male or female. And it's, and it's, it's also connected up to so many other things around um, music making in the home, music education, the arrival of the radio. You know, you've got the 1920s, the BBC becomes a formalised organisation. <laughs> um, recording quality and the availability of recordings, all of these things affect the amount of domestic music making that's going on, which gradually, gradually starts to peter out and continues to all the way through the 20th century, which means that the connected job of doing as well as listening starts to go away. So it's no longer the music that you want to perform at home. It's also got that slightly embarrassing, you know, Aspidistra, your grandparents kind of feel to <laughs> it by the time we get to the 30s and 40s. Nobody wants the kind of political implications also that go with that setup, that pre 
particularly that pre-First World War setup. Um, and yeah, there's this kind of new staking of a claim um, as, as women want to um, move themselves out of being associated just with the ballad tradition of moving more into the professional mainstream figures like Rebecca Clark and Ethel Smythe is trying to do it even earlier on. Um, and consequently, um, having to constantly fight and re-establish, well, re-establish, establish an identity in these other musical genres and looking to a completely different new style of music because modernism is about to happen in a big way in terms of where our next generation of female composers are going. Um, it's also worth mentioning that although um, she doesn't really write very much music, it's not until 1936 that Nadia Boulanger conducts the British premiere of Faure's Requiem. Um, so it's terribly late, actually, that this happens. Um, and constantly, for the whole of her career, um, she is badgered by journalists asking her about what it is like to be both a female composer and a female conductor. And of course, this is something that has been in the press hugely in the last couple of decades. And there really is a, a sea change now. Um, but she very famously replied when she was asked by an American journalist when she was the first woman to conduct the Boston Symphony Orchestra, you know, what does it feel like to be a woman conductor? And she said, well, I've been a woman for a little over 50 years and I've gotten over my initial astonishment. Um, as for conducting an orchestra, she says, that's a job. And I think, you know, there's, there's certainly part of this that goes with the idea of the female professional. Um, again, that's a hangover from the 19th century that it's sort of all right by the end of the 19th century to be publishing music on the side if you're effectively writing for a ballad tradition. But now if you really want to be taken seriously as a professional musician and composer as a woman, this is ground that needs to be gained. And it also means presenting yourself in a very different kind of way. And of course, one of the reasons why for, it's particularly difficult for orchestral and opera performances is the sheer number of people you've got to persuade and the amount of cash that you have to invest to make an opera happen, to get a symphony, a large symphony orchestra, to bother to get all the parts copied and get you into their subscription series and all the rest of it. Um, and that means that we do end up with some people who simply roll their sleeves up and found their own orchestras, because if no one else is going to book them, then they're jolly well going to do it for themselves. And amongst those, um, we have Ruth Gipps. She's um, on the left. Um, and that's uh, one of our pictures. You can see it's, it's dedicated to Mr. Brickle, who was our manager at the, with Wigmore Hall at the time. Um, and she was here several times, in fact, as a student. She studied with her mother, who put on many pupils' concerts here, which is a thing that we used to do and, and don't do very much now. Now you'll get um, the Menuhin students and the Purcell School will, will send their students here. But in the first 50 years, uh, there were relentless student concerts. Every summer especially, um, you just get the piano teachers and the violin teachers and the singing teachers would bring all of their students, all their best students, to do a kind of showcase. And that's where you first see Ruth Gibbs is with a whole sort of Gibbs family. There's, a, there's a, another couple of girls and they're all writing actually little miniatures mm. for piano or for violin. Um, but by this point, um, this is in 46, and so slightly later, but the 30s, 40s, she has written some quite large-scale pieces of music which are too big to be put on here and also um, some smaller scale sort of chamber works and she i've lost when she conducted she well she she founds her own orchestra, orchestra um in the in the 1950s sort of the rehearsal orchestra and she because she both she and her husband are orchestral musicians working in birmingham she founds her own orchestra and writes for them she writes several symphonies she writes some big um uh, one movement orchestral pieces and 
actually in the last couple of years, um, Rumon Gamba and the BBC National Orchestra of Wales have made recordings of several of the Gibbs symphonies um, on the Chandos label, and they are really fantastic. Uh, now, obviously, it's not music that gets performed here because it's for full symphony orchestra, um, but she is one of a number. You can sort of see often in the photographs just how determined these women look, because they've got to be. If they want to make this happen, they are having to, to push against quite a lot of resistance to get their names into the mainstream, and we are now absolutely in the territory of, if you are a composer, there's always the adjective that goes before it, which is woman. Yeah. You're not just a composer, which, for, as Emily was saying, for the ballad composers in the first half of the 20th century, that's, that's not an issue. You're just a composer. Um, yes, Ruth Gibson was at a concert of, her own, of some of her own works in 1941, um, which included the first performance of her quintet in E minor. Um, and also she, she shows up conducting another couple of concerts that are not of her own works, but she brings her, her orchestra, a smaller version mm. of her orchestra here, to do some of that. Um, and then that's we've got. We've then sorry. got the, the other the other photograph yes. that we have of somebody looking even more determined than Ruth Gibbs here is a rare young photograph. Sorry, yes, we I've tried and tried to find a young photograph of her, and almost all of the photographs of her were um, from much later on of a, of a woman who looked like she had fought very hard to get where she was going and right. smoked her way there also. That too. So this is um, this is Elizabeth Lutchins. Yes. She's, she's writing, um, along, with, um, along with McConkie and several others, Lutchins is one of the first composers who really gets to grips with seriously chewy, difficult, modernist, serialist type writing. Um, and I suppose that must have been a, an even bigger shock that it, was, that it was a woman composer doing this because women have previously been associated with genres that had largely been transferable to an amateur and domestic space. And that's really, that's really what you get in that time period here is fiercely modernist works by women. And it was interesting to me that the shape of the works by women, um, or like the prevalence of the works by women, if you look at those first 30 years, it's a very, very dense style-wise sort of grid of people. There they are in a sort of map of dots. And then once you move to this bit, it expands out and the women are, are, are doing different kinds of work they're doing small-scale chamber works, they're doing string quartets, a lot of string quartets and trios and, and, and piano quartets and that kind of thing. But there's so few of them. And there can't possibly have been that few actual women composers, mm. like women writing music. But you just, you were those people or you were not here. Yeah. Um, and it's, the, it's those names. It's McConkie, it's uh, Prior Rainier, it's Elizabeth Lutyens. Ruth Gipps once or twice, but mm. not so much. Thea Musgrave starts to come in in the 50s. Um, and really, that's kind of it. And it's not to belittle anything about that, because these women were getting their works performed by enormously famous musicians. They were hugely high-profile concerts. A lot of these were taking place at the Boozy and Hawks concerts that went on in the 1940s, where you know this music was, by virtue of being programmed alongside it, being put alongside Britain and Tippett and all of the other large you know, famous male composers at the time, all the contemporary composers. It was a huge achievement, but it was fascinating to see that really there was kind of no one in between. There's no sort of small flares of, of light that come and disappear even like you get now. You don't get names that just flicker and then disappear or who come a little bit and then, and then go away again. It's, it's these women who are extremely consistent. Sort of carving a place at the, at yes, the coalface. And, and it 
it shows you how hard it must have been, actually, mm -hmm. it, it, how hard it must have been to get that and to hang on to it. Um, because, as I say, there must have been many more women trying to who didn't manage it for whatever reason. And the kind of music, I mean, you know, she doesn't make it, Lutchins doesn't make it easy for you. Um, it, thinking of the sound world that we've had so far. So in 1939, um, she has a piece performed here called Concertino, and I'm pretty sure that that is the piece that's later rebranded Chamber Concerto in homage to Schoenberg. Um, and this is, this is the sound world that we've now moved on to. We're not many years off Rebecca Clark when we get to this. So if you could just sing that back to us. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a really, really different musical language. And there's something, there's something slightly confrontational about the kind of music that this generation of, of composers is writing. Um, I think on purpose. Um, and and I, I mean, I do wonder, certainly once Britain becomes such a big deal after the war, whether or not there's a, quite a conscious effort to not write things that sound like Britain or Tippett. Um, and to kind of hang on to the, to the modernist vibe a bit more, mm -hmm. to really distinguish themselves. Um, and, you know, somebody um, else who makes a brief appearance and then disappears again is Imogen Holst, um, who, of course, dedicates the, the better part of her career in the first hand to writing about and promoting the music of her father, and then to working as Britain's amanuensis at Aldborough. So she, although she is conducting a lot of choirs and working with folk song arrangements, she's not writing large bodies of music in the way that Lutchens, McConkie and others um, those are the names that tend to, f to feature most as composers. Yeah, she, she did conduct here, but not any of her own works. And we have only had a couple of her works done here at all. And they have mostly been arrangements, uh, choral arrangements, mm. for when we've occasionally had choir concerts. It's quite hard to fit a choir on the stage as yes. well, but we, did, we have done that sometimes. So during the 50s and 60s, two things happen. One of them is that there are several societies for um, promoting contemporary music. So there's the Society for the Promotion of New Music, um, the Institute of Contemporary Arts, there's the Park Lane Group, there's a few others who are putting on concerts of contemporary <coughs> music on purpose to try and get new music out there and get an audience and that's what they're committed to. That's the, the whole of their remit and we hosted lots of series by them. The other thing that happens is that after the war paper rationing is still going on and people stop keeping their programs. So during the 50s and 60s, many programs for concerts that went on here were repurposed as shopping lists or otherwise <laughs> reused and have never found their way back to us. It is not possible for me to know really what happened here in the 50s and 60s with any great comprehensiveness because 
we are missing so many programs, especially from the early, the late 50s and early 60s. They just have gone away. It's partly because the paper was being reused. It's partly because paper rationing meant that the quality of the paper was so low that people just weren't preserving it. The programs are all very sort of flimsy. You can see that they would have got very easily damaged, that they wouldn't have been, they're not pretty. You can't spend all of that money on thick paper stock or on beautiful Art Nouveau decorations or anything. You've, you've just got, here it is. Someone's probably done it on a typewriter. And, um, and then they've gone. And so in a lot of ways, without doing extensive digging through newspaper archives, which I've not yet been able to find the time to do for that time period, it's very hard to know what went on. So having said that it's those concerts and those women who, who come back over and over again, there are things like this concert in 1960 by the Kathleen Merritt Orchestra, which is, um, I think, Janet Baker's <coughs> first appearance here as a, as a performer. She, she came and did some masterclasses at the very end of the 1950s with um, Marcy Lehman, I think. Mm. Yes. Um, so she was a student in those, but she comes here to do this, the solo in a work by Ina Boyle. Um, but this concert of contemporary British women composers, most of whom, other than McConkie and, as I said, occasionally Ruth Gipps, really don't appear again in my catalogue, makes me wonder whether there were, in fact, more of these performances going on that I, I just won't know about until, at some point, maybe diaries or those programmes mm. make their way back to me from someone's attic or mm. wrapped around deeds or something or whatever's yeah. happened to them there's just no way to be completely sure um and this concert is i mean it's it's fascinating really because it's the first one that i could find that was women composers on purpose that was just women composers <laughs> on purpose here um as i said in the first 30 years no one really cared whether you were a female or male composer and in the 40s and the 50s it was you'd have your work by a woman alongside your works by men, and maybe it was a kind of novelty factor in some ways, but it certainly isn't presented that way. They were presented very seriously. This is the first thing that I can find that is to celebrate women composers. Um, and that's kind of a new, a new thing that starts to creep in, mm. I guess, through the 60s, although I can't be completely sure, mm. um, and then definitely into the 1970s. And, and one of the very interesting things about we were we were looking at this is this is the very program, um, which I'm only allowed to touch if I'm extremely well behaved. Um, but Emily's going to watch me, so I'll get slapped on the wrist if, yeah. if I've done it wrong. Um, but one of the things that is very interesting about the pieces is that they they fall very clearly into two categories, which is the pieces with descriptive titles, which are Grace Williams's Sea Sketches. Um, Ruth Gipps wrote a piece called Kringlemire Garden, an impression for strings. And there's an Ina, the Ina Boyle um, piece in this concert is, a, is the first performance of a setting of Emily Bronte's poem, No Coward Soul Is Mine. And then the Dorothy Howell, the McConkie and the Kirkwood pieces are all absolutely abstract titles. And it's, it's rather, it struck me as rather interesting that there's this rather clear divide between, you know, things that, we, that are quite descriptive and pictorial and then Nope, abstract. It's a concertino, and it's for bassoon, and that's all you're getting. A bit like the the um, the, the uh, Lutchen's um, chamber concerto. That there's a conscious distancing from, in some of these composers from descriptive titles, as if being descriptive would somehow undermine the seriousness of what it is that they're trying to do. Um, and so we've we've also got Thea Musgrave, who makes her first yes. appearance during this time period. Yes, she's an exception in some ways because. 
like Elizabeth Poston, who we also haven't mentioned, who does pop up here, her works that get performed are often for voice, which is very unusual at this time period. Most of what is getting done, um, as I said, it's, it's, it's string quartets, it's works for ensemble, it's heavily modernist, um, quite uncomfortable in some ways music, quite difficult music in some ways, although that's not really a, a term with any meaning at this mm. point. But I mean, it's confrontational, like you said. Yeah. Um, the Theon Musgrave and Elizabeth Poston works are much more lyrical and also involve voice in a way that had completely fallen out of fashion otherwise for, for women composers at the time. Um, and so it's, it's interesting because Elizabeth Poston, who is a fascinating composer and a very wonderful one, um, is also somebody that's pulled in by the BBC at the point that they want to found the third programme um, as an advisor because she's, she's very involved in music, music in media at that point and she writes TV and, and film music. Um, Thea Musgrave, of course, won the Queen's Medal for Chamber Music last year for the year of her 90th birthday. And um, I, was, I had the very great privilege of interviewing Judith Weir last summer. And I was talking to her about, um, well, we were talking about women composers and we were talking about Thea Musgrave. And she said that when they have the meeting to decide, because she's master of the, of the Queen's Music, she has to put together the list of recommended composers who may win the award. And they put Thea Musgrave's name forward first. And she said, and I sent it off and I sort of assumed that you know, it's not Her Majesty that looks at the list, it's, it's the next, you know, the undersecretary or something or whatever, sort of signs the, the necessary piece of paper and sends it back. And she said, I was completely astonished and delighted that several days later, um, back came the list and next to Thea, Musgrave's uh, to Thea Musgrave's name, the Queen had written, about time. <laughs> and she said how heartening that was that, you know, that, that you know, the, these, are, these are composers who... <laughs> Who, it's wonderful that we heard so much of Thea Musgrave's music last year because she's a fantastic composer. Um, but these composers have remained in consciousness, perhaps not necessarily in the places you might expect. Um, talking of things you might not expect, <laughs> we, we now find our way to 1971 and the first appearance of, I think, a phenomenon, it would yes. be fair to say. I couldn't let this talk go past without acknowledging this woman, although I don't know that she would want to have been acknowledged as a woman composer. <laughs> I don't know how many of you have come across Rosemary Brown, um, but as Katie said, she was a phenomenon. And the, the, the text on this <coughs> programme says, Rosemary Brown and her music, that Heather Shipman presents and explains, which would have been very necessary, <laughs> Rosemary Brown and her music given to her by the great composers of the past. Now, Rosemary Brown was in psychic contact, possibly, uh, with Bach, and Schumann, with one N there, and Schubert, and Mozart, and Beethoven, and, and Liszt, without an F, um, among many other composers. And she'd been speaking to them since she was little. She Liszt, was Liszt dropped by when she was seven uh, and said, I will come back later and give you my music, and then did. And she became a, a, a British phenomenon. She was on the radio. There was a television program about her. She performed here multiple times. Uh, each subsequent time after this one with um, a sort of screed of people saying this is completely true, it's obvious, it must be true. Um, the interesting thing about why they believed that it must be true, it was not so much that these pieces of music sounded so wonderful that they could only possibly be by these marvellous male composers of the past. It was because of what she was like. And you mm. get a lot of people writing at the time 
she can't be writing these things herself because she's too stupid, she's too boring, she's too ordinary, she's just a housewife, she's not educated enough, she's not interesting enough to be writing any of these pieces of music herself. Therefore, it is more likely <laughs> that Bach <laughs> from beyond the grave has communicated this piece of piano music to her. And that really astonished me that there were multiple people, academics even. Yes. Not like, we're not just talking students of the paranormal, we're talking musical academics, but musicians, people that they went to interview to, to find out whether there was any chance there was a grain of truth in this. People who'd studied those composers, they really believed that it was more likely yep. that the composers had come back from the dead than that a woman could have written music that was quite good. In, and and in that this, sounded in, this, in the and sounded stuff. Like this. Yes, there's a, there is, in fact, um, somebody has very usefully uploaded to YouTube the 1976 documentary film that was made about Rosemary Brown. And, and as Emily says, they, they spend some time interviewing um, a professor of music from Aberystwyth. Um, and the phrase that he keeps coming back to is, you know, it, it must be real because, you know, she's a very nice woman, but she's, she's just not clever. She's just not clever like that. So, and because she didn't have, she said, you know, she'd only had a couple of piano lessons when she was a child, she had no further musical education. Um, and there are some extremely distinguished musicians, I mean, as you can see from the, the performers in this concert, um, uh, who were fascinated by finding out what she was doing. When Leonard Bernstein came to this country, he bought a dinner and wanted to know all about it. Um, and, and a number of very high profile musicians who supported her publicly and, and performed and recorded this music. And there are recordings available of some of the pieces, although they are now listed, which as Emily says, puts her in this slightly odd category. They are now listed as being by Rosemary Brown. But whether or not she would wish to be listed as the actual author of the piece um, remains to be seen. Yeah. But certainly anyway. none of her none of her programs here because of course that was her her shtick if you like was that they were communicating it to her she is always listed as the kind of channel for the composer rather than the composer herself but now um we don't believe her anymore officially i guess is the, the official line is that it can't possibly have been happening and we we now i guess can believe that a housewife could write good pastiche music yes <laughs> rather than that bach came back from the dead uh, in order to dictate it to her so, so there's an evening debate to have on a future occasion. Certainly, <laughs> absolutely. Um, the next thing that happens really that is a kind of significant development in the role of women composers in programming at the hall is the Songmakers' Almanac, which was founded in 1976 and in 1978 uh, did this concert here in our <coughs> summer festival. And it was intended partly to celebrate it being the f is 50 years, 50 years. 50 years since women got the vote. Um, and also the musical director of this years. festival. Hmm? 60 years. 60 years, sorry, since women got the vote. Yep. Um, and the musical director of this festival was a woman. And they, so Graham Johnson, who founded the Songmakers Almanac, wanted to write a program, put together a program that um, celebrated women who'd inspired men, but also women who'd written music and poetry and had, who'd, who'd set their own, who'd set women's verses and that kind of thing. Um, and this is where uh, Fanny Mendelssohn and Alma Mahler come back, or in, in, in both cases appear at all um, at Wigmore Hall. Uh, Clara is in this programme too, but this is the first time that you see Fanny and Alma Mahler and they are there alongside Poldowski who comes back, Chaminard, Lili Boulanger, Ethel Smythe, Liza Lehman and Judith Bingham all of whom have either not been appearing or who've not appeared for a very long time. And that's really 
what starts to happen in the late 70s and during the 80s is that it starts to be the case that people want to put this music on in some ways as a, a, a you know because it's wonderful music but also there's a kind of academic undiscovered element to it and um, there's a sense that you are unearthing these things that you are championing these things that have been forgotten that you are putting on these things that have been lost partly because they've been lost which is not not a bad thing but it is a different way of programming and it's not um not so much at this time period always the composers who are writing things now you get to that point of the people like you were saying that the, the people who were no longer living composers and we are bringing them back into the light so you've got this concert from 1978 and then um in the 80s in 87 the camarata of london and glenda simpson sing a complete concert of the works of barbara strozzi and the notes for this program um lean heavily on the fact that they had to go to libraries and archives in Italy to dig up these songs and that they probably had never been performed in England before, that they certainly hadn't been performed in England in any recent memory. And except in 1914. Except, in, 19, except in 1914. <laughs> but that was only the one, and it was the only one at all until this happened. And that's kind of what starts to happen is, on the one hand, you get that kind of programming where the early music people you get some Hildegard of Bingen starts to come in then as well early music people are doing research and digging up those things and Graham Johnson and the Songmakers Almanac are, are digging up the turn of the century if you like and on the other hand um, contemporary works for voice start to come back in a bigger way which is why we've got Jane Manning and friends she put on a, a series of three concerts in 1983 um, which included works by Judith Weir and Lutyens. And those were, uh, it's a kind of split between the, the idea of digging up the old and the idea of the extremely new. And some of that mid-century stuff drops away and isn't sort of, that's not where people want to focus anymore. So we've got the... Judith Weir. We've got a little bit yes. of King Harold's saga. Which is what, um, what Jane Manning sang in the middle one of these concerts. I mean, it's worth perhaps also just saying about, about Songmaker's, um, yes. Songmaker's Almanac that, that, as Emily said, this is, a, this is a sudden awareness of a historical tradition and that although what, what Graham was doing at the time was not initially a huge deal in, in academic circles and, and you know, biographies of women composers of only sort of 80s, 90s onwards, we are now moving into a point where we've got sort of feminism and cultural critique and so on coming in, yeah. in a bigger way. So there's more self-examination of where women are featuring in things and why. Um, and that's going to affect the shape of musical literature through the 80s and 90s and 2000s, where we start to get encyclopedias of women composers and more conscious attempts to, um, to look back to the 19th century and to the early 20th century and composers who have got lost, as well as... Um, Almost, and it's why we chose King Harold's Saga, a sort of reclaiming of vocal music as being something that you can do and it's new and it doesn't have to sound like a ballad tradition. Uh, it, can, it can sound completely other. And, and it's all right for a woman to write vocal music without it necessarily having to sound like just a song at twilight. Um, King Harold's Saga most definitely does not sound like just a song of twilight. It's a three-act opera for a single singer who has to play all the parts and be the narrator as well. Um, and it lasts about... 
12 minutes, I think, mm -hmm. all told. It's absolutely wonderful, and it's an amazing thing to watch live. Um, I'm going to play you, this is Susan Bickley um, performing it, and she will give you the scene setting at the beginning of Act One, and then you'll hear a little bit of the opening of the music, so you get an idea of what it sounds like. Um, but it's an amazing experience to be in a room with this. King Harold's Saga, Act One. It is the year 1066. In the royal palace at Oslo, King Harold of Norway recounts his previous triumphs on the field of battle. To a fanfare of trumpets, Earl Tostig arrives from England. Tostig is a traitor. He persuades King Harold to invade England. And so on. Um, and of course, Judith Weir does end up having full scale operas performed at, at the Colosseum and elsewhere. Um, but it's, I mean, yeah, I, I saw a live performance of this last year and it is just a wonderful thing to be in a room with. But it's hugely intense for the singer because they are everybody orchestra, narrator, all the parts, everything. And that reminded me the other thing that gets brought in in 1980, also by the Songmakers Almanac, uh, is Kathy Bavarian's Stripsody, <laughs> which has only been done here twice I think and is scheduled to be done again next season which is very exciting for me because I love it um, but that too an extremely experimental work for voice which can get brought in and done <laughs> yeah I mean it's 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 called Stripsody because if you if you haven't heard it and do come if you haven't heard it because yes. it again is an amazing thing to see live the entire score is written out as a cartoon strip um, that the singer has to interpret. And it's a very, um, it's a noisy cartoon strip in that there's, there's clearly kind of, you know, sploshing and shouting and characters and animals that are making different noises and radios being tuned and so on. But it's not written out and pitched like a traditional score. And um, Barbarian was, was married to Luciano Berrio. So in, we've got in the kind of from, from the 50s and John Cage through to the 60s and into the 70s. Between Cage and Berrio and then Barbarian, we've also got three composers who are completely reinventing what it means to sing. Yeah. And that singing is about all the different noises that a voice can make. It's about speech as well. And of course, that liberates the voice and the female voice in her case um, from being connected to very lyrical sort of ballad type music that's, that's previously been around earlier in the century. So you've got the kind of the weird and wacky stripsody type things on the one hand, and then the, the bringing back of the historical models on the other hand. And, you know, Jane Manning is working with a lot of leading contemporary composers at this date, so lots of new music that's being performed, sometimes that appears and then goes away again, and sometimes composers that sort of stick around and that remain with us in the repertoire now. And that then gets picked up into the next decade where we've got yet more composers appearing on the scene. And at this point, we start to... Um, Emily made a list of, of composers from certain years from the 90s and early 2000s. 
and the list gets longer and longer and longer in terms of the variety, both in terms of the number of composers and their age ranges, yeah. actually, and also their nationalities. Yeah. And the other thing that, that happens, if you think about that shape that I was talking about, of this, this very dense pocket of, of so many song composers, and then the, the sort of threads of the chamber composers in the middle of the century, in the 90s, it just goes off in all directions, like fireworks. It's amazing. And there is a great freedom in that, and in some ways also a constraint in that. If you start looking in the mid-90s at what we were doing here, um, there's no longer any way to predict what is going to happen. There's no longer any way to predict what works by women composers, what kind of works by women composers are going to get put on here, which is very exciting. You will get string quartets and you'll get string trios, piano quartets, piano quintets, but you'll also get works for guitar, works for flute, works for harp, works for percussion. The next thing that I've got on here is from our centenary celebrations where uh, Evelyn Glennie came and she, in the she gave a series of concerts that where she performed works of her own too, but she also often performs works by Keiko Abe, who writes for um, marimba and percussion in general. Yep. Um, and she was also doing a work by Elena Katz-Chan in there. Um, and that and Erilyn Wallen's Louise Loops, which was for toy piano, uh, which was another thing you don't necessarily expect. But that's what starts to happen is that it is completely unpredictable. And that's very vibrant, it's very alive. But it also leads to a greater tendency for things to be performed once and then to vanish again, because there is a kind of inherent strangeness in some of this repertoire that is, if it's not getting done over and over, it doesn't necessarily form part of the consciousness of people's listening patterns. They don't, if it's a work for a recorder, you're only going to get the people who came to a recorder concert. And you're only going to get those people who came to a recorder concert where they were prepared to hear contemporary recorder music where it wasn't, I want to hear Baroque recorder music mm. or I want to hear you know, period recorder music. And if it's a work for something like this, where you've got Evelyn Glennie and Emmanuel Axe and, and Toy Piano by Margaret Langtan, you know, you'll get a wider audience because Emmanuel Axe is playing, but it's still, you have to be people who are prepared to go into the unknown in a way that really was not happening in the 80s and 90s so much. Mm. And um, as I said, it's very exciting, but it, it it does come with constraints and it does mean that the number of works by women that we have put on skyrockets when you compare it to what was going on in the 70s but the number of works that come back is actually comparatively few it's not none at all there are some composers who do come back again and again you get um roxana panofnik several times uh, we put something on here. Judith Cheryl Francis Hode yep. comes back. Judith Bingham makes quite a few Judith appearances. Judith Bingham does make a few appearances. Um, Cecilia McDowell several times. Sally Beamish, we, we've done work with as well. And that's the other thing that we start to work with female composers. We start to commission works, um, which in some ways skews the statistics, but like in a good way, because that means that we're, we're doing that on purpose. Um, and the last slide that I've got here is from our Helen Grime Day in 2016, where we invited Helen Grime to be our composer in residence here, the first female composer in residence. And that too is, you know, a way for us to be developing programming to include more works by women in a way that we just weren't doing 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't a thing. We, it wasn't a thing to have a composer in residence. It wasn't a thing to kind of commission works or to involve ourselves musically with the composition of works. Um, 
And since we've started doing that, there are a lot more as well. So that's been an interesting mm. thing too. And one of the things that we picked up in the programming from the last sort of 10, 15 years is, is also um, composer performers who are coming and playing their own arrangements of things. Um, and musicians like Gabriella Montero, who improvise as part of their concerts. And that's something that's come back in. You know, that's what everybody did in the 19th century. But now it's, it's relatively new. So we have, we have arrangers and improvisers that enter the huge list of, um, of women composers whose music has been performed here. And I suppose, actually, um, one of the things that comes out of, of what we've just been talking about and that kind of that spreading out from the 90s and 2000s is that Interestingly, we're now at a point where we're starting to get a sense of gradual rediscovery of names from the 19th and early 20th centuries that are re-entering the repertoire. What is still in flux is who from the 20th and 21st centuries is going to stick in yeah. the repertoire uh, because it's about those repeat performances. It's all very well and good to have a premiere, but it's, it's having enough performances to keep the composer's name in the kind of in the ether so that we know about them and to turn them into more um, established figures of um, the musical world at large. And that does seem to be happening with certain figures of the kind of who were born in the 70s and early 80s are starting to establish themselves. And Helen Grime is one of them, Alan Meredith, um, and there are various others. And Cheryl Francis Hode is one from the kind of younger generation who's really, um, in the last couple of years, reputation has gone sky high. Um, we, must, we must stop so we've got enough yes. time for you to look at the programmes. Um, but there was just one thing that I wanted to, um, to mention, and, or rather to ask, because this was something that Emily and I thought we were going to spot earlier on, and it turns out is not the case. And that was looking at the fact that we've just had Evelyn Glennie playing a, a number of composers, uh, female composers, and Jane Manning and so on. How much is it that female composers are being promoted by female performers? And actually, from what you were saying, that, that's not it no. anymore and it's and it's it was a nice discovery that because i certainly thought going into it that what i was going to find was that there would be a sense in which women felt women performers felt it was their job to do the works of women and to bring those works back into the world but it really hasn't been the case and when it is the case it's largely a coincidence it's <coughs> things like you know evelyn glennie was just at the top of her game as a percussionist which was why she was invited to perform here and why she was doing those works but Many, many, many of the works by women, especially contemporary works that have been done in the last 20 years, it's been mixed ensembles, it'll be all male string quartets, it'll be male singers singing works by women, not just on purpose to do, I'm doing a concert of works by women and aren't I mm. good and, you know, woke, but, uh, but also just because they love the music. And that's, that's a really lovely thing to have discovered. The, that because the, we were going to talk about the, the gendering of song and we don't really have time to <laughs> well, get into that now, right. but in, in a a very real way for a long time sung by women um, in the late 20th century was sung by women and it, that was what you did whereas as, as I said in the early 20th century nobody cared whether you were male or female you were just singing it and it's starting to come back to that now which is really nice to see happening. So in fact it's everybody that is enjoying and promoting this repertoire and all we can really say is we hope that there's an awful lot more of it. Yes. So we've got some programmes, some of the programmes that we were talking about out and a couple for of you others to look too at. That didn't make it into the slideshow. Um, that, yeah, that, exactly, that didn't make it into the slideshow. Um, but do have a moment so that you can at least look at the programmes. And thank you so much for, for coming today. Thank you very much.